Yeah, I hadn't seen the sermon bumper before last night, and of all things, I wore a white shirt. <laughs> so this morning, I got a Paisley shirt. For all of you who are young, it's just a thing from the 70s. You just had to be there. And you know how grandparents are? You know, we'll take any excuse. I saw the video up there of baby day. Mary Alice and I have a brand new, a brand new grandbaby this week. William Martin Hoover was born into the world this week. And... Um, Congratulations to my son, Jared, and my daughter-in-law, Jessica. The last William Hoover was my great-grandfather, and he was known as Wild Bill Hoover. So I hope <laughs> Liam's personality is a little different. <laughs> um, our series is called When God Asks Questions. And associating God with questions is not that unusual thing because we tend to think about questions we would like to ask God. I've been speaking since I was 16, pastoring since I was 20, so I'm accustomed to meeting crowds at the end of services. And even to my teenage days, there would be people that would say, I'd love to ask God this question. And frequently the question is some form of why do bad things happen to good people? But we actually encourage questions at New Spring. Were you ever part of a church where they discourage questions? Well, we, we encourage questions about God, and we actually have a ministry here called Starting Point. Thousands of you have been through it. It's just a living room environment where people are able to explore the basic things about Christianity and ask any question they want to ask. And we've had a lot of people go through it who were agnostics when they went through it. They just said, hey, I want to explore. So we're cool with questions. But today we want to flip, we want to flip that. And we want to talk about the fact that not only do we have questions for God, but God has questions for us. When I started this series, I thought about all the places in the Bible where God asks us questions. And if you ever read through the Bible, you'll be surprised. In fact, let me just encourage you. Sometime when you're reading through the Bible, just mark the questions that God asks. Or even if you don't read through the whole Bible, just read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when God was on the earth in skin, in Jesus. Notice how many times Jesus asked people questions. Sometimes when people asked him questions, he would flip it and ask them a question in response. So that raises a question. I mean, when we think about God, and I don't like to talk in theological terms because, for one thing, I'm not that smart, but I do know that there are three attributes that we associate with God or that we attribute to God. We say that God is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. We say that God is omnipresent, which means he is present everywhere. And he is omniscient. That means he knows everything. In fact, Jesus told us that God even knows the number of hairs on our head, which in my case is not that big of an issue, <laughs> except the declining balance is continuing. So if God knows all these things, why does he ask us questions? Well, I think there are three possibilities. I mean, it could be the first reason why God asks us questions is he just doesn't understand our thinking. I think about Isaiah 58, 55.8 just about every day of my life. In Isaiah 55.8, God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. So if I don't understand things, I just have to remember that God doesn't think the way I think. You know, people tell me how they think God thinks, and I'm thinking, well, unless you really know the scriptures and understand God's processes, it's not likely. That's why none of us is going to be able to think our way to God on our own. It just doesn't work. Because God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. And he goes on to say, my ways are nothing like your ways. So it just could be that, that God doesn't understand our thinking, and he's saying, if he asked me a question, it could be, Mark, I just don't get where you're coming from. But I think it's more likely, the second one is a lot more likely. You know, questions are gentle, aren't they? God is God, and he, his word is, is sure, and his word is definite. So God could just hand down directives. He does sometimes. But, you know, when you ask someone a question, you don't end the discussion like, a directive does. I mean, if someone tells you this is what's wrong with you and this is what you need to do to fix it, it's sort of like the end of the conversation. 
A, a skilled counselor, skilled psychologist, skilled psychiatrist, some of you have had the opportunities I have to interact with them. If you ever go to a really skilled counselor, you know, there are only so many human situations. And so chances are pretty quickly they're going to be able to guess what the issue is. And that psychiatrist could say, here's your problem and here's what you need to do. But most likely, a skilled counselor is going to ask you something like this. Tell me what you were feeling when you said that. Tell me what, tell me what you were thinking that led up to that decision. Why? Because that counselor wants to begin a dialogue. He or she wants to begin a conversation with you that will lead somewhere to, to greater understanding. And so I think one of the reasons why God asks us questions is he wants to have a dialogue with us. He wants to, he wants to communicate with us. The third reason, though, and this really gets probably down most closely to where we live, I think that when God asks questions, as I've studied them, and we're going to be looking at what I believe are the five most important questions God asks in this series, I think God tends to ask us the questions that we fail to ask. I've had the privilege as a leader to interact with some great business leaders in our country. And one of my favorite business leaders to, to just talk to, I had the privilege of having lunch with him here in Wichita when he became CEO of Hawker Beechcraft for a short time, is Steve Miller. In business circles, Steve Miller's called the turnaround kid. That's because companies tend to bring them in when they're in deep trouble, kind of like they're in their last stage. And Steve Miller has a long track record of being able to turn companies around. If you're under 50, chances are you're not going to remember this. But it was a big thing back in the 70s to have a, an American car maker be in trouble. We, we didn't have the situation that we have today. And Chrysler was one of the, quote, big three. Chrysler was about to go bankrupt. And some of you will remember the name Lee Iacocca, who shepherded Chrysler not only through a government-sponsored loan, but all the way to being a very successful car manufacturer. And even though Lee Iacocca was the face of that turnaround, Steve Miller was really the nuts and bolts of it. And after that experience, he was so well-known for his ability to turn companies around that he went on to Bethlehem's, I probably have this out of order, but he went on to Bethlehem Steel and Waste Management, Detroit Symphony, and I'm sure I'm leaving out companies that he went to. And so I had the privilege of having lunch with him. It was really great. I planned to pick his brain, but instead he picked my brain about New Spring, and it hit me he'd never turned a nonprofit around. But I had read his book, and his book's a good read. For all of you who love business paradigm books, I'd suggest The Turnaround Kid. When I read his book, I, I sort of figured that it'd be 200 pages of what it takes to turn a company around. Actually, there were only two pages dedicated to that. The rest of it was all biography. If memory serves correct, it's been several years since I've read it, he only listed eight things that he did to turn a company around. And number one on the list was pick the low-hanging fruit. I, I was intrigued by that. Because basically what he said is when he goes in to turn a company around, he said there are problems that are glaring to anybody on the outside, but the people on the inside walk right past them every day. And they are in, a word that we use sometimes, they are in denial. And as an outsider, he comes in and says, hey, these are some things that you could do real easily, and if you fix these things, you can goose up your, your output or you can goose up your production real easily. Well, the truth is the same for us because sometimes it's low-hanging fruit. It's stuff that we walk past every day. There are marriages in trouble here today or watching online or watching on television, and you're very good people. You're a wonderful man. You're a wonderful woman. We'd all love to hang with you. There's you're great people. The problem is that you're just walking past low-hanging fruit. And if you just dealt with some of those simple solutions. So I think one of the reasons why Jesus asks us questions, he tends to ask us what we're walking past every day. 
Well, with that in mind, I want to take you to the very first question that God ever asked a human. And as you might guess, it is at the very beginning of the Bible. In fact, if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can go all the way back to the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And so we're going to read what leads up to the first question that God ever asked, Genesis 127. Let's start there. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. I always think God is really trying to make that point because he restated it and just used different organization of words. Male and female, he created them. Hmm. America. <laughs> Genesis 2.9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. That's interesting, those two designations, isn't it? Pleasing to the eye. You ever thought about how beautiful fruit is? You know, if you start art, chances are somebody's going to have you paint a still of fruit. Fruit's beautiful, isn't it? And, it? and fruit is so good. I mean, I was thinking about this last night before I went to the campus to preach the 4 o'clock service. I ate a banana before I did. Isn't God great to put the sweet fruit inside a container that has a zipper opener? Yeah. So God did. God just made all this, all this fruit, all the plants of the garden, and he put them there. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I have skeptics who, say, who kind of rid me and they say, oh, your God is trying to keep people back from knowledge. No, that's not what it says. They had plenty of knowledge. Adam was way smarter than any of us were or were. I mean, after all, the Bible says he named all the animals. You remember college biology? All that kingdom and phylum and subphylum stuff? And yet Adam was brilliant. So it wasn't that God was trying to keep him back from knowledge, quite the opposite. If you'll look at the conjunction there, that's the key. God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, God was just basically saying, I don't want you to know the dark side. Okay, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For the first time in the Bible, we have a God rule. Okay, I want you to look at that statement because it's up on the IMAG screens. Uh, one more time, can we have that up? If you look, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Tell me, is there a comma there or a period? Say it out. Is it comma or period? Comma. Why is it? Because if there was a period there, it's like God is saying, hey, do this because I tell you to do this. But there's a comma there because God is saying to Adam and Eve, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. God was saying, Adam, please don't do this. Don't, don't eat from that tree, the, the knowledge of the dark side, because the moment you do it, you will surely die. Well, this is not my talk today, but it's in my text, and I can't avoid it. So I need to talk for a few moments about creation. Listen, guys, when it comes to how we all got here, there are only two possibilities. There is either an intelligent first cause, and whatever that intelligent first cause is, is God, or we are the product of random accidental chance. Those are the only two possibilities. And I'll just tell you something. We live in an age today that's so very fuzzy that we don't think this through. This week I had lunch with a couple of my good friends, and they're non-theists, and they actually work with a non-theist organization here, but, but we're friends. You know what's interesting? We wound up agreeing on something. I mean, obviously, we talk a lot about a lot of things, but 
I was amazed that when they talked about the organization, they said it's one of the greatest challenges to find people that will even think through anything because they said people are intellectually lazy. And I thought, wow, I run into the same thing. Isn't that strange? Non-theists and a Bible preacher. And here's the deal. I, I don't agree, but I have, any, I have great respect for anybody who will think it through and come to a real conclusion. But for me, it makes all the sense in the world that we are the product of an intelligent first cause. You know, if you ever think through evolution, notice something, especially every time I hear a lecture on Darwinian evolution, it's always amazing to me how every time the lecturer always begin to, begins to use nature and evolution as though they were proper nouns. Evolution gives us, nature gives us. But have you ever thought about the fact that if you ever ask someone, probe someone about Darwinian evolution, they'll always say, if they know that you're a person of faith, they will always say, well, I believe in natural causes and you believe in supernatural causes. So consequently, what they're saying is, we believe in evolution because it is natural. It is a product of nature. But then when you ask them the, how the presence of nature appeared, they will always tell you that's evolution. So consequently, when you get right down to it, evolution depends on nature, and nature depends on evolution. It's sort of an intellectual Ponzi scheme. I'll just get off that real fast. <laughs> I'll just say this. If you go out and you look at a cloud on a sunny day, and that cloud begins to take the shape of an elephant, you know those things just happen. You know, that's just random. If you go outside and you see white clouds in the sky that say, eat it, Joes, <laughs> there was a pilot in an airplane that did that. That's all I'm saying. But there are only two options. Now, the Bible says that God created the earth. And as he did, there are two words that become really key right at the beginning. The first one is perfection, because when God created Adam and Eve, they were in a state of perfection. They had perfect emotional health. They had perfect psychological balance. They had perfect physical health. They had perfect sex. They were, they were in a perfect environment. It was the only time, ladies, there was ever a perfect man. It was the only time, men, that there was ever a perfect woman. Just want you to know that. And then the second word that I want you to understand is choice. One of the questions that I actually have been asked this many times, there are actually two questions. Two questions I could ask a lot of this. Number one is, if God knew that Adam was going to sin, why did God create him in the first place? And then the second question is, if God knew that Adam was going to eat of the tree, why did he put the tree in the garden in the first place? You've got to understand something about God. I don't know that I know the answer to the first question, but I definitely know the answer to the second one. You see, whenever God creates any being... It is vitally important to God that that being have choice. Because if we don't have choice, then we can't voluntarily love God, which is the most important thing to him of all. So consequently, he's always going to give his beings, angels included, choice. And so consequently, God had to set up some sort of platform whereby Adam and Eve could have a choice. They could voluntarily choose to obey God. So consequently, put one tree in the garden. Think about what a slow pitch he gave them. This is the friendliest choice I can possibly imagine. It wasn't like they were hungry. It wasn't like they needed that piece of fruit. They had fruit everywhere. They could have anything they wanted. God said, I'm going to give it to you. But God just gave them one slow pitch choice and put that tree in the garden. You know, every once in a while, someone will say, well, Mark, what kind of fruit do you think it was? I don't know. You know sometimes people ask me, do you think I should eat pineapples? Maybe that was the fruit. Do you think I should eat apples? Listen, guys, please understand. The disaster was not in the fruit. The disaster was in the disobedience. God set up a choice. God gave them a voluntary choice. 
and they chose the wrong thing, and everything blew up. Now, let me go someplace else with this. Another question I get asked about this, is, and somebody may have even caught this today, and that is, you could say, well, Mark, um, according to God, God said the day you eat of the fruit, you're going to die, and Adam and Eve didn't die that day. Okay, really heads up for a moment. We don't understand the definition of death. In, this is in Hebrew, but eventually in the Greek, the word for death would be thanatos. Thanatos means separation. We, we tend to think of death as someone ceasing to exist as the cosmic stop sign, but the only death that we really can see visually is physical death. But what you understand is that physical death is the separation of the soul and spirit from the body. So when we say that grandma died, she didn't cease to exist. Her soul and spirit became separated from her body. We had her body left behind. Consequently, since we can see that, we associate that as the only definition of death. But death means separation. There are three kinds of death. There's spiritual death, and there's eternal death, and there's physical death. Spiritual death is when we are separated from God, and that's the condition that God was telling Adam and Eve. If you eat this fruit, we're going to be separated. Up till that time, God and Adam and Eve had had a great time together, but God was saying, look, if you do this, we're going to be separated. You'll be separated from me. In fact, read this verse with me, because this is a verse about hell, and I don't know that I think about hell as being death, but listen how the Bible says this. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, the second separation, not the cessation of existence, but the second separation. Okay, so now we have Adam and Eve. They're in this perfect garden. They have a choice. And along comes Satan. We know that Satan was an angel God created. He decided that God shouldn't get all the props. He wanted glory himself, said he was going to take over heaven, and God just thumped him out and landed on the earth. So now he's on the earth with God's creation, and he comes along and he tries to sell our first parents on his own, his own act. Okay? Verse 4. You will not surely die. Well, God said they would. But Satan said, no, no, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing, it's a key word there, knowing good and evil. Now, here's what Satan is promising Eve so that we'll understand it because now we're about to get right into 21st century America and the world for that matter. Satan was saying to Eve, look, if you make this call, if you do this, you can be God and you can decide what's right and what's wrong. Up till now, God's been making the calls, but if you do this, you will become the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. Listen, guys, I, I, I know this is not a politically correct message. And, and if, according to the wisdom of this world, no pastor of a megachurch should preach the things that I'm preaching yet today. But you realize my goal is not to be popular. I'm going to stand before God, and the question is going to be, did I get you ready for heaven? Not did I make you comfortable with 21st century postmodern America. I have that responsibility. We live in a world today, and let me, let me take a st- another step. We live in a, in a day of American Christianity where the idea is I am the arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. I mean, even my atheist friends were agreeing with me on this. We live in a time where people, it's, not, it's like we've lost our ability to understand that certain things are true. 
It's like, well, whatever I feel is right. Whatever, I, whatever my mood is, if I feel right, if this is right, then it must be right. If I feel that it's wrong, then it must be wrong. And we have to understand that that is exactly the, the deal that Satan was offering Eve. He was saying, look, if you will disobey God, God is trying to keep something back from you. God is not fair. God is, is keeping you from knowing what you want to know. And if you eat this fruit, then you can be what you want to be. You can be your own God. Now, I don't know what Adam and Eve were thinking specifically as I got close to eating this fruit, but I'm guessing something like this. They were saying, you know what? If we eat this fruit, then we can have all this stuff that God has given us, plus we can be our own gods and decide what's good and what's wrong. And then they ate of the fruit, and guys, let me just show you one of the most chilling verses I ever preach in the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Look at this. Then they realized. I wish I had a dollar for every time. I've seen somebody in my office that I've counseled or talked to where those words were exactly apropos. I remember a woman. This is our old campus a long time ago. She was in a good marriage, loved her husband. Her husband loved her. Good family, had good kids. And no reason for what she did, but she worked in a place, and there was a guy that was just kind of a, he was kind of a flirt. He wasn't married. He wasn't, I mean, he just, he was just one woman after another woman, but, but it was just like he, they, they, start, they started flirting. And it was harmless at first, I guess. There was, you know, he was kind of flirting with her and sort of pretending to be, and she was kind of flirting with him. And it kept going and kept going, kept going, got, got hotter and hotter and hotter until finally she began to think about, wonder what it would be like to sleep with him. And she told me the story that she did. She just couldn't, it just seemed like it was such a wonderful thing. She'd been married for a long time, and it was like her marriage had sort of like settled, and it was like, wow, if I could just sleep with this guy, I could have everything I have, plus I could decide what I want to do. I wish I could just, without showing you, I wish I could just blew out her face and just show you what it was like as she sat across from me and put her face in her hands and sobbed. Her body shook like a tree in a wind, in a Kansas wind, as she said, it was awful. The sex was awful, and the feeling I had afterward was awful. She said, I would give anything in this world if I could just turn back the clock. See, Satan sold her a bill of goods, and then she realized. I remember a guy who came to talk to me in this location. He worked for a good company, had a great job. He was in the financial end. Money's a little tight. He thought to himself, you know what? If I just adjust the books a little bit, I can take like a couple hundred dollars here, maybe $100, $200, $300 here, and I can cover it up and I'll pay it back. He did it once and he did it again and he did it again and he did it again until finally he had embezzled so much money that there was no way he could pay it back and the authorities were on their way to come arrest him. And I wish you could see him as he said, as he said in my office, I don't know how in the world or why I did such an awful thing. It goes against everything inside me. Do you ever buy something that you couldn't afford? It was ridiculous, but you just, it was a house that every time you walked through it, it just seemed to call to you. Or the car on the lot just said, I'm yours. And you said, I can't afford this. And it could cause all kinds of problems in my relationships. But it was like, I'm going to buy this thing. And the moment you sign your life to, away to that, and you, that afternoon you're saying, what was I thinking? Because then you realized. Listen, guys, this is the way Satan always works. And this is the way sin always works. Sin is like crankbait. 
You know when you're fishing and you throw out the lure? You know the lure's not real. It just looks like something that's attractive to the fish. The fish thinks he wants it, grabs it, and then he's hooked. And that's how sin works. Then they realized. The biggest problem you have, and I know it's so hard to really grasp this in 21st century America, the biggest problem you have is sin. It's bigger than cancer. It's bigger than a relationship breakup. It's bigger than any setback that you can experience because nothing that we have in our lives has the potential to drag us to hell. Sin is the biggest issue that we have. And now Adam and Eve have sinned. And now we're going to get to the first question of the Bible because God comes along. The Bible says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Did you ever get in trouble either back when you were in school or at work and you're like waiting to find out what's going to happen to you? I remember we had a rule in the Hoover household when I was growing up, uh, and that rule went something like this. If you get in trouble when you're in school, you're going to really get in trouble when you get home. And so I was terrified of always getting in trouble at school, but I did. In the fourth grade, two times, I had to go to the principal's office. The only time I ever had to go to the principal's office in all my years of school. I don't know what was wrong with the fourth grade. What, what happened? It wasn't all that bad. It's just a bunch of us boys. It was, a, it was a fall morning. The acorns had fallen off, and we were playing army and throwing the acorns back and forth at each other. We were having the best time until a teacher came along, rested us all, took us to the principal's office. Mr. Roten was old, no pun intended, was an old school principal. And this will tell you how far back it was. He kept a paddle in his desk, and the paddle had holes drilled through it as to augment the impact of the paddle. And when I, went, when I got to school, elementary school in the first grade, my eyes were wide open because I heard other boys talk about Mr. Roten's electric paddle. I mean, everybody was talking about it. Everybody was, people talking about it. Man, I got licks with Mr. Roten's electric paddle. And I sat there, and Mr. Roten deliberately did not come in for 45 minutes while the 22 of us boys sat there waiting to find out what was our fate. And all that time, I had ideas of his electric paddle. I could just see him plugging it in, you know. So Adam, I think, is in the same boat because he knows he sinned. He knows what God said to him. He's waiting to find out what's going to happen. Is God going to send down a thunderbolt and hit him? Is God going to nuke them all? God comes along and says, here's the first question. Where are you? That was not a geographical question. Even Adam knew that. If you look at Adam's answer, he knew it wasn't geographical. I mean, if it was, he would have said, I'm over here by the pear tree, but he didn't. Look at what he said. I heard you, so I was afraid, so I hid myself. Here's the question, and this is why this one is so important for us in postmodern America. God was asking him, where did being your own God get you? See, that's something that we all crave, isn't it? We all want to be the arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. What's... We even have a saying in America. We say, it's right for me. That may be right for you, but this is right for me. Well, if we're talking about the choice of an automobile, then that's legit. But if we're talking about moral absolutes, then it's crazy. You know, we live in an age today where people say, well, I don't judge. <laughs> well, first of all, God hasn't asked us to. He, he's already judged. But if we mean, when we say, I don't judge, if, if what we mean by that is that we don't judge people's intent, that's, that's a good statement. If we mean we don't judge their final outcome, then that's a good statement too because we're not called to judge. 
But if that means we don't know the difference between right and wrong, which seemingly that's how Americans apply that today, if a person has that feeling, if they commit a crime, they're in great shape because their defense is already set because according to the monoton test of criminal insanity is not to know the difference between right and wrong. And so God comes along to Adam and Eve and he asks them, where did being your own God leave you? Well, it got them banished from the garden for one thing, but then also something else. In Genesis 2.25, this is before they sinned. The Bible says the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And then in verse 7, after they ate, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, and they sewed fig leaves together. So they sewed fig leaves as like little coverings. And I've been told that fig leaves have spines that are very pokey and sticky. Just the very thought of that is awful. Father's Day, my wife told me, Mark, you've got to pick up a hobby. I love my job. I don't do anything but work. And so she said, look, you've got to, do some, you've got to take some time off. You've got to come up with a hobby. It's Father's Day. I want to buy you a really nice present. Pick your hobby, whatever it is. I just want you to do something that takes some time off. And so she was talking about getting a camera. And all you guys who take pictures, I really appreciate your pictures. They're a blessing to me. But me having to take pictures would be like sending me to purgatory, which doesn't exist. But... Uh, I said, well, you know, I never played golf much. I started in my late 30s. I never, I never knew how, and I'd just go out and hack around, and I just said, look, I guess I would like to play some golf occasionally, but I'd like to take some lessons so that I could just at least not embarrass myself. So she said, great, bought me some golf clubs, and I've been taking lessons for a few weeks. They had golf pro, and he's a really nice guy. And he's got, he's got a couple of characteristics that you don't always find in the same person. He's matter of fact, but he's very patient, and he needs to be with me. Because I can never get all the mechanics of the swing down. I'm always going to leave one of the two of them out. And so if he tells me something, then if I don't get it, he'll repeat it for me. And maybe say it in a different way. And a lot of times it'll click with me. So anyway, I'm just, you know, out day one day taking a lesson, hitting the ball. And I never can get all the mechanics down. So I said to him, I think you're going to fire me someday as a student. And he said, no, you're really doing real well. But he said, I did fire a guy one time. He said, I, I, he kept paying for lessons. I taught him lessons. I taught him lessons. I taught him lessons. And he said, he never did anything I told him to do. So he said, I just thought maybe he's not understanding me. Maybe the way I'm saying it, he's not getting it. So he said to him, well, tell me what you think I'm saying. And the, and the guys got told him. And my teacher said, well, you clearly understand what I've been teaching you. He said, so why don't, why don't you do any of those things? He said, because it doesn't feel right. And my instructor said, after pausing, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to teach me in a way that feels right. And my instructor said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I only know one way to play golf, and it's the right way. And that's all I can teach. If you want to do it your way, you're going to have to be out here 10 hours a day. Maybe you might get a little somewhere. The moment he told me that story, I thought he just gave a commentary on 21st century America. And let me be even more frank. He just gave a commentary on the 21st century brand of Christianity. I hear what you say, God, but I don't do it. Why? Because it doesn't feel right. 
And the God of creation says, what do you want me to do? And American Christianity says, we want you to teach us in a way that feels right. And God's saying, I'm sorry, all I know is right. If you want to do it your way, then you're on your own. And that's what God was saying to Adam and Eve. Well, somebody can say, well, Mark, I don't really understand because you started off talking about Adam and Eve, but now you seem to be talking about our generation. Do you ever inherit anything genetically from your parents that's a predisposition that causes you trouble? Maybe emotionally or psychologically, or it could be physically. My dad suffered from skin cancer. He had a whole lot of skin cancers. Most of them were basal cell carcinomas, which were not that dangerous, and just you had to get them taken off. But when I was about 25, Dad called me over to the house. This was before I moved to Kansas. And Dad said, I want you to look at something. And he took his lip and he pulled it back. And I looked at his lip and he had a growth on the inside of his lip about the size of a large marble. And Dad asked me, you have any idea what that is? Is that I got to go to the doctor this week? I said, Dad, I have no idea. When he went to the doctor and got the biopsy, it turned out to be squamous cell cancer. Squamous cell cancer is a great deal more dangerous. In fact, most head and neck cancers are squamous cell. And my dad was very blessed of God because it had grown quite large and it could have metastasized and we would have lost him. Thankfully, they were able to help him. They cut a large V out of the side of his face and he, he survived. About three years ago, I was doing a conference in Kansas City and I was sitting in, in the car and the sun was coming through my sunroof and I was looking in the mirror and I saw a little white spot on my lip, tiny, about the size of a pinhead. And it didn't, I thought it'd go away, but it didn't go away. So I went to see my doctor, and he said, well, I don't think it's anything, Mark. But he said, you know, and we have an oral surgeon here at New Springs, a good friend of mine. He gave me a referral to go see him, and a friend here at New Springs said, Mark, I don't think it's anything, but let's get it out. Let's, let's take it out. So he took it out, and when he came back a week later, he said, you know what? It was precancerous. You know what kind of cancer it would have become? Squamous cell. You know where it was located? The identical spot that it was on my dad's lip. Now, I, I go see this surgeon all the time. He is so patient with me because he's always saying, Mark, it's no problem, it's no problem, it's no problem. But I inherited something, and the question is, what am I going to do about it? The reason why I'm talking to you about Adam and Eve is very important to you because, see, you inherited something. Let me read to you what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. So in other words, what the Bible is saying is we all inherited a sin nature from our first parents. That's why you don't have to teach your kids to lie. You don't have to teach your kids to throw temper tantrums. We all have a predisposition toward doing wrong. We inherited it from our parents. I want to read another verse, and it gives away the good news before I wanted to give it away, but let me read it to you. The Bible says, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, so consequently, since we are offspring of Adam and Eve, we have inherited sin and death and hell. But the rest of the verse says this, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. I stand before you today to ask you the question that God is asking. You inherited something. What are you going to do about it? I hope you're like me in, in the way I freak out over anything that appears abnormal on my skin. 
I don't mean that you would worry, but I hope you take seriously. See, the thing of it is, God loves you, and he wants you to be comforted, but, but God at the same time wants to be taken seriously. There is a way out, and that way out is Jesus. That is why 365 days a year, 52 weeks a year, we preach Jesus, 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 because the only hope that we have for sin is Jesus. This is what the Bible says in the book of Matthew chapter 1 when God was telling Joseph what he wanted the name of the baby to be. He said, his name shall be called Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. I preach this message today because I'm troubled and I'm concerned about something. Every weekend, I pray with people to receive Jesus. But I'm talking to a generation of Americans that have the idea that sin is not sin. The things that God calls sin, they don't think are sin. Well, then why do you need a Savior? If sin is not sin, what are you asking for when you ask for Jesus to save you? Because the Jesus that we read about in the Bible came to save me from my sins. He came to save you from your sins. But if I say what he says is sin is not sin because of political correctness or because of personal preference, at the end of the day, it raises a question, what in the world do I want a Savior for? The Bible talks very frankly about this when it talks about people who preach Another Jesus. And that's why Jesus said when he was on the earth that many at the judgment will stand before him and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we do many things? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. It's because they accepted a Jesus, but it was a caricature of Jesus. It was a, a, a fake Jesus. Listen, if you're talking about the Jesus who loves sinners, you got the right Jesus. If you're talking about a Jesus who's cool with sin, that's another Jesus. That's a fake Jesus. Adam and Eve, when they were there hiding in the trees with fig leaves covering their genitals, they were trying to figure out what was going to happen. Was God going to nuke them? And here's the great thing that I love about God. When he showed up there, he asked them, where are you? Where did being your own God leave you? And instead of God just blowing them away, instead of sending this earth out into a black hole, God showed up with a plan. And the first time that plan, the first time Jesus is ever mentioned in the Bible is Genesis 3.15, just a few verses later, when God said, someday the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, in other words, indicating that Jesus would be virgin born, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of Satan, and indeed he did come, and he did save us from our sins. Where are you? You don't have to answer me, but you need to answer it for yourself. Have you ever realized that you really were a sinner? Have you ever come to God realizing that you're spiritually bankrupt? See, here's the thing. At the end of the day, you need to understand God is not asking you to be perfect. He is just asking you to agree with him about what sin is and the danger that it poses to your eternal soul. And coming to him and realizing that he made a plan for you. He put Jesus on the cross to pay for all your sins so that the blood that flowed out of his body was a currency that would wash you clean from all your sins. I love 2 Samuel 14, 14. It's just a great verse about the love of God. The Bible says, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we all must die. I love this line. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. If you feel a sinner today, that's good. If I'm talking to somebody here and you say, Mark, I just feel like such a, a, a sinner. I mean, I know myself. Well, then that's great. God can help you. 
The person he can't help is the person who feels like they're perfectly fine. They don't need a savior. As Jesus said, the, the well don't need a physician. He said that tongue-in-cheek, of course. God devised a plan. In Isaiah chapter 53, the Bible says all of us like sheep have gone astray or strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. In other words, we've all pulled that fruit off the tree. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. We're sinners. God wants us to own up to that. God wants to embrace us to embrace what he said about sin, to realize its danger, to realize what we've inherited, to realize where being our own God has gotten us, and to realize that God made a way out for us, that our sins could be paid for by Christ. And if we will come to Jesus by faith and ask him to be our Lord and Savior, he will wash our sins away, even though we will always be flawed, even though we will always fail. He will wash our sins away and make us God's daughters and God's sons. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I want to be sure of that. I don't, I don't want to accept another Jesus. I want to make sure I accept the true Jesus. Well, first of all, I appreciate you listening to a message that <laughs> is not the most politically correct message. I just care about being cosmically correct. I care about being eternally correct. This world is on its way out. Jesus is coming. But if you're here today and you say, Mark, I want to know that I'm saved, then I want to do something with you. The Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, I want to pray a prayer, and if you want to pray it with me, you can. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads for a moment. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't be my own God. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Would you please forgive me and wash me clean? Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I know we're crowded this morning like we usually are, but if you just prayed that prayer with me, I have a gift I want to give you. You can take the card in one of the seat backs. Either on, it's either in front of you or on either side of you. And just write down that you prayed to receive Christ. If you go back to guest service, they'll give you a packet, a gift pack with a brand new Bible and some other great stuff. If you're in the North Auditorium, there's one right outside your door. Thank you guys for being here. God bless you. Be safe out there today.